do need church. We do need these uh, life-giving communities. And there are life-giving communities out there, no matter how we might have been burnt by uh, Christians in the past. Because I've been in many situations in my life where I can't pray. I need someone to pray for me. You know, I can't worship God. I need someone to worship for me. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Glenn Scribner is the director of Speak Life, a UK-based organization that shows the love of Jesus through creative communication. He's a speaker, a producer of online content, and the author of several books. His latest book is The Air We Breathe, How We All Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality. In it, Glenn makes the case that Western culture isn't as post-Christian as we may have thought. Glenn Scrivener, I am very happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Hey, thank you for having me. And so uh, you just this, I think it was just this summer, uh, or at least this year, published a new book called The Air We Breathe. Um, And the idea, why don't you tell us what the idea of this book is? Well, uh, in 2019, Tom Holland came out with a book called Dominion, which is a big fat book about the history of Christianity uh, and how it has shaped the modern world. And his big thesis there was that uh, one of the marks of the success of the Jesus revolution is that we don't notice it. Um, We are like goldfish and Christianity is the water that we swim in. And uh, it's a, a terrific read and he's a sensational writer. Um, but it's 600 plus pages. Right. And I remember giving it to my father-in-law for Christmas and I got Tom Holland to sign it. And it was the perfect <laughs> Christmas present because my father-in-law loves history. And yet it sits there on his shelf and it still remains unread. And yeah. so one of the, one of the great uh, desires of my heart is that my father-in-law <laughs> will read <laughs> Dominion for Dummies, AKA the air we breathe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, by the way, I, I uh, listened to that book on the audio book. While I, mm. I had some enormous yard project and and I uh, listened to it while I did that and it, and it took hours and hours, but I just love that book. Oh, sure, it must have done. Yeah, yeah. And I uh, and I love I, I appreciate your um, um, putting the the cookies on a little bit lower shelf here or the the biscuits mm-hmm. maybe I should say. Uh, <laughs> I understand. I understand. If, if that's more helpful. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you make the case that. Somehow, Christianity has gotten the reputation as being an enemy or a, or a, a hurdle to contemporary Western values like equality and compassion and consent, enlightenment, mm-hmm. science, freedom, pro- progress. I think it, those are the those are your chapters, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, those are the, the the core seven values that I discuss. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and but you make the case that it's not far from being the a barrier to these things. Christianity is the very basis of these values um, that we think of as modern Western values. Yeah, sure. And, and you can see that by like that. If you just reverse those seven values, you get something that is unequal, cruel, uh, non-consensual, unenlightened, anti-science, uh, restrictive and regressive. And what does that sound like? That sounds like the worst. You know, if any, if anything is the opposite of those seven values. We think of it as being the worst. Well, why is that? It's because these seven values are transcendent values. They are the best. But the other interesting thing is, what is it that we first of all think is described by you know, being unequal, cruel, coercive, etc.? It's the church, right? 
Um, and, you know, we live within the Jesus revolution and we are children of the revolution. And what the children do, they, they kick against their parents <laughs> and they think they're being incredibly rebellious. Yeah. Um, but all along, you get to a certain age, I'm in my 40s now, and the other day I opened my mouth and my father came out. <laughs> and you just, you just think, oh, no, it's happening. And it, it always happens. And I think we're all starting to notice Tom Holland is just one of many secular thinkers. Um, who has started to see, you know, human rights and equality. They, they don't come from the enlightenment. They, they don't yeah. come from uh, the assured findings of reason and science. They come from Christianity. And, um, and, and I therefore think pressing into that has huge potential for showing that our secular friends are, are perhaps not as secular as they thought and that maybe they are already believers. And we just need to point them to the one who makes sense of those beliefs. Yeah, you 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 draw a distinction between Christianish values and Christianity, mm-hmm. right? And you say right. in in Western cultures, people have Christianish Christianish values. Yes. Why, yes. why is that a helpful distinction? Between well, I'm not saying. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly not saying that anyone born in the West is by default uh, a Christian believer. Um, what I am saying is that the moral imagination of uh, of people born in this part of the world has been shaped just irrevocably by the, the Jesus revolution. And it's Christian-ish in that, um, you know, for instance, that first, that first value that I talk about, equality, um, Galatians 3.28 says, uh, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Um, what has happened over the course of political and moral philosophy is that we've kind of secularized that truth and detached it from its origins in, in Christianity. And now it's not so much that we're one in Christ, it's that we are equals in society. And that starts to have a different flavor to it. Oneness involves kind of bonds of, of communion and love and self-sacrifice equality and rights starts to be about um, my privileges and uh, and me as an atomized individual. Mm. And so where the biblical vision is really that we are all equally welcome at the same table, I think the modern secular Christian-ish version of it is that we ought to all be equally far up our own individual ladders. Um, now we we never would have got that idea of equality without the Jesus revolution, but we've we've travelled some distance from Galatians when we start to be individuals and individualistic, um, and that, that's just one of the examples uh, yeah. of the ways in which we've detached these Christian values, and that they are now recognisably Christian-ish, but not Christian. Yeah. At one point, and and you can you can help me out if I if I misparaphrase you, but you you say. When we, when we want the kingdom without the king, we dethrone Jesus and put their abstract values. Yes. And values can't forgive. They can only judge. Only a person can forgive. Yes. Values can only judge. I thought yes. that was a really interesting insight. Well, it explains so much of why it is that a very secular society is also very judgmental. Yeah. Um, you know, the Dostoevsky quote, you know, without God, everything is permissible. Um, that's, you, you, can, you can understand why a society detached from traditional religion might become more permissive. But what we're noticing is that uh, we're not so much a permissive society, we're, we're even more puritanical. Um, yeah. 
we, we've got even more purity tests for people. We want to excommunicate people. We want to declaim them as heretics and, and um, put them outside of the camp where we are now incredibly preachy, not permissive. Yeah. Um, why is that? Well, it's because we've got the values of the kingdom, but not the king. And that's just, that's a horrible kind of semi-Christianity to, to, to have only the values of the kingdom um, and not the king himself in whom those values are so evident. And, and you know, it's, it's bizarre, really, to, to prize compassion in the abstract. Um, the reason why we love compassion is because there was one person called kindness himself, you know, in, in, in Titus chapter 3 the kindness and love of God appeared. Titus 3 verse 4. Jesus is kindness himself. He is compassion himself. These, these values, they have a person at, the, at their heart. When you divorce the person from it, they become abstract and they become judges. And then at that point, have I been compassionate? Well, not as compassionate as I could have been. What, what do I do about that? Well, in one sense, I could become contrite and humble and, and perhaps seek greater compassion. Or much better is I can point the finger at some other guy and say, <laughs> he's much worse than I am. And this is what we've got. We're just hurling accusations at each other. I say, you know, the culture wars are just, we're hurling Bible verses at each other. We've just forgotten the references. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's good. Um, so these insights, I mean, you're talking about the fracturing the fragmentation of public discourse. Um, any thoughts on how these insights help writers, people who do creative work, communicate mm. in a culture that is so fractious? Well, I, I think in these crisis moments, you could think of 410 AD and the Visigoths sack Rome, and you just think, well, that's the end of the world, isn't it? Mm. It, it would have seemed like the end of the world to a Roman yeah. citizen. The, et the eternal city has been over overturned. Um, and yet, what is the response to that? You get an Augustine in North Africa writing the city of God and writing millions of words of, of theology, but also of you know music theory and legal <laughs> theory and philosophy and, and, and all sorts. And out of that cultural crisis emerges this great this great desire to um, to reimagine how society can be based around the city of God and not the city of man. And and I wonder if there's a um, there's a similar opportunity at the moment when the city of man is so fractured and so divided. Um, is, is there hope for political unity mm -hmm. um, in the United States? Let's ask. Uh, gosh, that's, that's, a, that's a very, it's very difficult to be hopeful uh, about discovering unity at the political stage. Well, put yourself in, in the sandals of, of a North African who looks over the Mediterranean and, and sees Rome sacked. Um, that, that is a, an even more cataclysmic event. And yet what, what we saw was the, the emergence. I mean, Christendom was kind of built out of the ruins of, of those sorts of tragedies. And, and it was the, you know, I mean, the imagination of an Augustine and just the incredible turn of phrase that he had, the mind, you know, it's, it's yeah. often said that, you know, the entire Western church lives inside Augustine's head. Um, <laughs> even the Protestant Catholic divide, it's, it's you know, it's, it's oh, Augustine's yeah. doctrine of the church versus Augustine's doctrine of grace. Who's going to win, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but th there are opportunities at, at these crisis moments for, um, 
for the great thinkers, the great writers to, to step forward and, and cast a vision that is of the eternal city and, and not of the, the fractured human political societies. Yeah, I have uh, really loved the city of God these last few years. It's been, it's mm. been a lot of time dipping. In, I, I won't say reading straight through, but dipping in and, and, yeah. uh, and it's been a really helpful book for me lately. On the yeah. other hand, I'm not Augustine. Right. Yep. 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 <laughs> and you said this is a time for the great writers to step up. Mm-hmm. I agree. What about the you know those of us who are who maybe you're just good <laughs> writers or just writers, <laughs> just writers. Yeah, yeah. Like the Glenn Scriveners of the world, the the the, uh, the, the cut price Tom Hollands of this of this world. Yeah, um, like, like me. Um, yeah, I mean, when you when you see, for instance, in in church history, how. Okay, how how did um, glad- the gladiatorial games get overturned? Um, there was legislation, but it went hand in hand with the lives of the saints, the lives of uh, like a monk like Telemachus, who went into the Colosseum and he just wanted to stop the blood sports. And so he jumped the fence and got into the arena and stood between the two gladiators trying to stop the bloodshed. The gladiators didn't know what to do. The crowd did. They stoned him to death. <laughs> um and you just think, what a loser! Mm-hmm. Um, what what good what good is that? And yet, news of the martyrdom of Telemachus, you know, reaches the emperor's ears, and and he overturns the he mm-hmm. he bans the gladiatorial games. Or you, you think of um, a saint like Macrina, who in the fourth century would just tour the rubbish dumps where the Romans would routinely cast off their children, especially their little girls and their disabled children. To be exposed to die, and um, and she started a movement of saving the children and, and building the orphanages. And um, you, you think of a, a you think of a preacher like a Frederick Douglass, um, mm, yeah. who hears an enslaved man who adopts the religion of his enslaver, but understands it um, <laughs> and, and transcends both his slavery and his his slave master in his knowledge of christ and and you do, you just see throughout church history these people living for christ and and some of them uh, are quite ignominious and mm. and it's but it has just been the the little acts of the compassion equality consent etc it's, yeah, it's been yeah. the little acts of of faithfulness that has brought about the revolution yeah i love it i i, I like the distinction you draw between the song and the singers you say Jesus mm. gave us this beautiful song that we've often sing out of tune. <laughs> um, yeah. And yet, as you say, if you've truly heard the song, you can't get it out of your head. Yes. Um, yeah. And I got that from John, John Dixon, who wrote uh, Bullies and Saints, which, is, which shares a lot of the same themes as, as my book and as Dominion. Um, so, yeah, he... He, interestingly, Tom Holland wrote a commendation of John Dixon's book, um, and he said it's it's apologetic apologetics. Um, mm. it, it it is saying you know sometimes the church has, has been the worst um, morally, ethically, spiritually, um, and just just owning that. And and so his his great um, illustration throughout is that Jesus gave us a great song to sing. Uh, we mm. sing it badly at times, but the song remains true. And, and I, I use that all the time when I'm talking to people about these issues, because 
often the brickbats get thrown at, at Christians and, and what about the Crusades and what about the Inquisition, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I, I just find that a really helpful little analogy. Yeah. 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 I think it's very freeing, you know, to, to, to think uh, I don't have to be a genius. I don't have to be hmm. original. <laughs> um, right. If God grants that I am original at some point, well, good. But if I can just give an account of the hope that's within me, um, yes. that's that's worth a lot. Yeah. And you're, you're referencing First Peter 3, verse 15, which is sort of the verse about apologetics. It's where the word apologia is, you know, comes from. Uh, always be prepared to give an answer, an apology um, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. And interestingly, that that verse has, has or certainly that word has led to a conception of apologetics as a very philosophical enterprise in which I memorize Aquinas's five arguments for the existence of God and, uh, and I'm yeah. able to download them on somebody ready, ready or not. <laughs> here, here come Aquinas's five ways. Whereas in in its context, you've got these bedraggled refugees mm -hmm. in First Peter who are strangers and exiles in the world. They're just barely clinging on by their fingernails. Yeah. And it's the idea of other people asking them, um, how are you still standing after yeah. the year you've just had? And the apology, the apologetic that you give at that point is, is not... Uh, a very erudite philosophical argument. Mm. The apology you give at that point is, I don't know how I've gotten through. <laughs> Somehow Jesus has carried me. Yeah. And that's brilliant apologetics <laughs> in its own. That, that is apologetics, first Peter style. It's, it's interesting how far we've come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I, I remember, you know, as a, as a young and overly serious man, you know, mm. thinking I was on the hook for somehow needing to be able to rattle off something on the basis of that verse. Yes. And since realized that that just giving an account of something beautiful in the world, that counts too, of giving an account of the yes. hope within me. So I'm I'm an evangelist and I go around and, and churches will ask me to help train people in personal evangelism and, and I, I give them all sorts of um, sort of sentences up your sleeve that you can have. And one is, that's what I love about Jesus, dot, 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 finish the sentence. Or that's what I love about my church, dot, 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 how do you finish that? But then the one that's very first Peter 3 is, I couldn't have gotten through X without mm. Jesus. Mm. What is X for you? And you start talking like that, you're, you're about to have a very rich conversation. Yeah, that's good. I also, while we're on the subject of the song and the singer, um, I appreciate this formulation um, of yours, which maybe you borrowed from somebody else, but you can you can give credit Probably. if need be. <laughs> you said we can't survive with the, we can't survive on the memory of a tune. We need it sung to us. Yes, and yes. I I think that formulation is a, a big encouragement to people who do who, who write who make music who do art. You know, the, the idea that, that we're just singing this song to people who need more, you know, who need to be reminded. Yes, yes. And it means, we yeah, we need community and we need a worshipping community that can hold us and carry us when we can't carry ourselves. Mm. So 
I, I write the book, the book, I um, explicitly say this is for the nuns, the duns and the ones. So the, the, the nuns are the N-O-N-E-S as those who reply on a survey. Do you have a religion? No, none. But the duns are those who are done with Christianity and perhaps they're deconstructing. And my, my real um, burden for them is, yes, you can't survive on the memory of a tune. You need it sung to you. Will, are you able to find a community that you can trust again to sing that song to you. Um, it, it is not enough to simply throw the church under the bus and say the church has been terrible for 2000 years, but the singer of the original song Christ is great. Mm. Um, we, we do need church. We do need these uh, life-giving communities and there are life-giving communities out there, no matter how we might've been burnt by uh, Christians in the past. So that that's really my burden of, of cause I I've been in many situations in my life where I can't pray. I need someone to pray for me. You know, I, I can't worship God. I need someone to worship for me. I'm an Anglican. So I, I you know, the, yeah. the whole idea of liturgy holding you and mm-hmm. um, said prayers. Um, I, I don't find that to be, um, you know, going through the motions. I think there are motions that have been given to us to go through yeah. because yeah. we're bodily creatures. That there are motions that are meaningful and to be carried by those uh, can be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's the, I was, I was specifically applying that idea to, writing and and art making but that's that's really a relatively small piece of the pie when it comes to singing the song to one another right it's it's a small and and not the most important piece of the pie or the biggest piece of the pie it is the piece of the pie that i'm especially interested in but um but as you say but we're, we're telling this truer story to each other in a lot of different ways and we we need to be immersed in something bigger than us um as well, here's here's another problem with apologetics in the sort of the modernistic sense. Um, it's it's a very rational enterprise where you think your way towards the kingdom, um, mm-hmm. and and beauty is just something you cannot reason with. Um, the you know the heart has its reasons, etc. Um, so there is something about. There is something about being immersed in something that you do not understand and you cannot wrap your head around, um, but it transcends you and you know it, which is a real antidote to a lot of um, evangelical evangelism mm-hmm. tends to operate as though there's a, there's a great cathedral there um, called Christianity. And the evangelist is outside the cathedral with a little pamphlet and it's got a, a thumbnail sketch of the cathedral that explains how, uh-huh. how the cathedral was put together and how the cathedral works. Cause that's what you really need to understand. You really need to understand how the whole thing fits together and it needs to be explained to you. Um, whereas to have the song sung to you, um, to be immersed in the arts is to have someone grab you by the hand and yank you into the cathedral and you don't know what's going on. You don't know. You don't know how those flying buttresses are keeping the ceiling up. You you, you don't know <laughs> how this part of the building relates to that part of that. Doesn't matter though. Um, that yeah, there's something that art can do um, in immersing us in just in just a grander vision. Um, and it's such a it's such a healthy antidote to I think a modernistic apologetic that actually doesn't work. 
Yeah. Yeah. Flannery O'Connor talks about the idea that that um, in a story, uh, meaning is an experience and not an abstraction that you can then pull out. Mm. If, if you could just pull the, that meaning out, you wouldn't need to write the story. You, yeah, yeah. You could just yeah, yeah. give. And and that that feels similar to what you're saying about the, the cathedral and, and the faith. Right. Yeah, it's like the T.S. Eliot, you know, he, he he reads a poem publicly and somebody says, can you explain the poem? So he reads the poem again. And then someone asks him, no, but really, can you explain it? So he reads it a third time. Yeah, you know, that, that'll just, learn him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there's something definitely, definitely about that. And, and you know, in the Anglican tradition that I'm from, um, there are there are services of just scripture that is said to you and sung to you um and you get a lot of bible actually yeah. in 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 these services and maybe the choir is doing some of the praying and some of the singing and some of the some of the scripture reading um and maybe you're not as involved as you might like to be but um it, it is again that that sense of being carried by something bigger than you which is which is what faith is like faith is dependence right mm-hmm. we've turned it into decision faith is decision mm-hmm. uh, no no, no. Faith yeah. is dependence. Lots of, lots of things unfold from, you know, from that fork in the road. So many, so many people conceive of faith as decision, and and decision theology kind of unfolds in a certain direction. Faith as dependence goes in a very different direction and and uh, a much healthier one. Mm. I, I, I want to ask about another. I'm now I'm now changing the subject, Glenn. Okay. So. Uh, we're still talking about your book now. Um, you talk about the idea that Jesus never suffered anxiety uh, regarding the size or the prospects of his movement, that what he was interested in was distinctiveness. distinctiveness. Uh, as you say, um, there's, a, there's a phrase, oh, the peculiar proved to be potent. Right? The, 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 um, the focus uh, for Jesus, the focus of the Jesus revolution, let's say, is a distinctiveness. Um, and we can, uh, what I took from that is we can let the uh, the techniques and the platforms and these kind of things take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'd like to hear you say more about that idea of peculiarity, distinctiveness, and why that is, uh, is so important. Yeah, well, so to, to my three audiences, I, I say to the the nuns, you don't need to leap. You don't need to take a leap of faith. Uh, you just need some ground beneath your feet because you're all, you're already midair. Um, only Jesus will do. And I, I say to the duns, um, uh, what do I say to them? I say, I say something uh, something very profound. I'm sure it was something. Um, obviously. Yeah, great. I mean, not quite as good as what Tom Holland would have said, but but great. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Something pithy and memorable about to the dun- <laughs> to the dance. But then then to the ones is is be weird. Be weird. Um and you you just see again and again in the um in the history of the church, what they're saying doesn't make any sense. Um so pederasty, for instance, I, I write a um chapter on the sexual revolution of the first few few centuries. Um because the the sexual revolution that's built our world, you know, happened about 1900 years earlier than the swinging 60s. And in that situation, um, you know, there's 25 Latin words for prostitute. 
Um, and there's no natural way of referring to an adult male virgin in Latin. You just can't do it. If you say virgin, you just mean a woman. You, you, could, you could not possibly mean a man virgin. Um, and, and a trip to the brothel would set you back the price of a loaf of bread. And they, they were state-sponsored. And, and wow. therefore, the, you know, the armies have to go and enslave um, other nations and women in order to keep the sexual economy going. Um, and pederasty... Um, is celebrated as, you know, uh, usually an, an older man um, initiating a younger man in, into sexual rituals. And it was called pederasty, which means child love. And it was really weird for Christians to come along and be virgins. That's yeah. Incre incredibly weird. It was incredibly weird to, um, to have especially um, men to restrict their sexual sexual appetites and behaviors so that they were to be chased in the, the exact same way that women were chased and to attack that double standard. Um, I mean, we, we realize how weird it was because when Peter is told about the, you know, the marriage and family program of, of Jesus in, in <laughs> Matthew chapter 19, he says, Oh, if this is the case, it would be better if we weren't married. Um, he says, as a married man, we are not yeah. told what Mrs. Peter thought about his interjection at this point. He, you know, red-blooded men looked at the sexual revolution and naturally said, yikes, you, yeah. you mean marriage is one man, one woman, the doors are locked, no one gets out alive, are you serious? And Jesus, well, yeah, yeah. Or you could be a eunuch for the kingdom. Those, those are your two, two options. And the, the absolute revolution in values um, was extraordinary. And the, and the, the Greco-Roman world could not wrap their heads around Christians who would not go along with the sexual tide and who would resist the sexual tide. And therefore to be a virgin was to be a rebel and, and to actually show the possibility for free will. I mean, it's very, it's very interesting when you look in the, in the early centuries about how fatalistic, you know, the, the Greco-Roman world was, and you look at Greek tragedies and, and you know, no. you know what, you know, it's going to unfold into a catastrophe at the end. Um, there, and there is no way out. And actually, where do we get the idea of free will from? Um, Kyle Harper has written a brilliant book called From Shame to Sin about the, the sexual revolution of, of the early centuries. And he, and he said, you know, the, the front edge of the Christian view of, of free will butted up against the world over the issue of sex and Christians vowing chastity was the most incredible flag raised for freedom, yeah. which we, we find that difficult to, you know, surely freedom means being liberated and being liberated means being licentious, but no, the, the great, the great revolution was chastity. The great revolution was, okay, we're not going to call it pederasty anymore. We're going to call it pedophthoros, which means child destruction. What the, mm. what the Romans called love, we will call abuse. Yeah. And it was weird. And it was, it was totally cutting against the grain. But its weirdness was its witness, you know? And, yeah. and you know, the peculiar proof potent. Um, we don't, we don't need to be the same as the world. And, and I, I say that very clearly at the end of the book, because what I don't, don't want people to think is because the world is Christian-ish, therefore the church should be world-ish. I'm not saying the world should be church, <laughs> yeah. the, the church should be world-ish at all. Um, we should keep doing our bonkers thing um, of following Jesus and being weird. 
um, that that is where the revolution happens. Mm. Wow. Well, that's good stuff. Um, I typically end with this question, so what I'm going to ask you now. Mm. Who are the writers who make you want to write? Mm. Um, I love I love poetry with a punch. Um, um, Gerard Manley Hopkins is probably my 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 favorite oh. writer, really, um, and and poet. Do but, you read his uh, his like his letters and and his prose? Do you do you read those too? No, no. Have you? I've kind no. of poked around. I go back to the poems whenever I whenever I try to read the letters. I go yeah. back to the poems pretty quickly. Yeah, I've got a I've got just got a volume of his, of his poetry, which I just go back to, and just the um, the polishing of of words to to become jewels um is is just extraordinary and you know just just as jewels are kind of stones glorified you know poetry is prose glorified and just raised to that level and it and it speaks to me because i've got monkey minds and i i don't know i haven't had a diagnosis of adhd i wouldn't be surprised if someone gave, slapped a diagnosis of that on me um i'm incredibly scatterbrained and therefore, I need the punchy. I need I need to be grabbed by the throat. Hmm. Um, and I would just it would kill me to think that I'd I'd written a plodding page. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it would. I'm sure I'm sure I've written many, but the 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 idea of writing plodding prose kills me absolutely. Kill. <laughs> I have absolutely no patience for it. When I when I read, I, I mean, I, I discard books left, right, and center. Yeah. Like, no, sorry, <laughs> you lost me. I, I gave you thirty pages. That's, yeah, that's right. It's, I'm it's out. The, it's the uh, author's job to keep your attention, not your job to pay attention, right? Yes, yes, I like that. I like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and was it Kurt Vonnegut? Oh, what, what does he say to me? Like, write write in such a way that, um, yeah, that you beg the you're begging the indulgence of a perfect stranger, you know, always bear that in mind. You're yeah. begging the indulgence of a perfect stranger. <laughs> so get to the point. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, any, yeah. Any, anything that, um, any, anything that, sh that, is is sharp prose that hits me in the yeah that punches me in the guts and grabs me by the throat and says look look again this is this is what I this is what I try to do because I I just have no patience for for anything else to be honest yeah well great well Glenn Scrivener thanks so much I, I and thanks for writing this book um I uh, I have high hopes for it I, I hope a, a lot of people read it and uh, and benefit from it so. Thanks for being here, and thanks for writing this book. Hey, absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me on. The Habit Podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To check out more of our podcasts, visit rabbitroom.com slash podcast. Our work at The Rabbit Room would be impossible without the generous support of our membership. If you'd like to learn more about membership at The Rabbit Room, visit rabbitroom.com slash member. And thanks for listening.
The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at thehabit.co.